We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, I'm uh, glad to see you, brothers and sisters. My name is Sam. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad to, to be with you and um, to be in this wonderful passage together. Um, a quick reminder for all of our members, uh, we do have a special business meeting this afternoon via Zoom, so be in prayer for that and uh, come, come to that, um, prepare to engage and listen well, um, and uh, that, I think that's it. So let's go ahead and, and um, uh, pray, and then we'll jump into this passage together. Our God and Father, we thank you for this morning. This morning where we are privileged to come before you in your presence with fellow saints to worship you and feed on your word. We, your people, are needy. We come here with many needs, some small, some great, but our greatest need is deeper communion with your son, Jesus Christ. So please send your spirit this morning to apply these words to our hearts appropriately. The Spirit of Christ, please open the eyes of our hearts to expose them to the incomparable beauty of Christ. Let us behold His glory this morning. And may the greatness of His mercies dwarf our fears, anxieties, rebellions, discouragements, laziness, and anything else that would threaten to keep us from Him. As we look forward to Thanksgiving this week, let us embrace the principle of gratitude and resist the strong pull of discontentment and resentment and bitterness. We who have been brought from death to life and have been granted into the family line of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, have eternal rationale for gratitude 
So help us to embrace it regardless of our circumstances. And now, Lord, be with your people as we submit ourselves under your word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, our study through the book of Romans thus far has introduced us to many ideas that cut against the grain of our culture, and this week is no exception. In our world, we are animated generally by two uh, compulsive needs. The first is the need to exonerate and excuse ourselves, and the second, related, is the need to shift the blame for what has gone wrong with the world to the other, to them, whoever they are. Whatever has gone wrong with the world, it's their fault. Thus, we live in the midst of what the philosopher Roger Scruton called a culture of repudiation. The way we expunge ourselves of guilt is by identifying who is to blame and then distancing ourselves from them. The problem with this tendency is that pretty soon, when we will have torn down every monument and canceled every ancestor, and repudiated every blameworthy figure, we will be left with ourselves still. And all of our problems will remain. And this is because, this is because the persistent problems in our world are far deeper than we can possibly imagine. We may try to repudiate a group of people and then distinguishing, distinguish ourselves from them, insisting that they're to blame for what's wrong with the world and that we are different from them. But what's really wrong with the world is not reducible to the things that distinguish us from them. Again, whoever they are. What's really wrong with the world is not reducible to the things that distinguish us from others, but the things that we have in common, which is that our father is Adam and our slave master is sin. What's wrong with the world is what we have in common. What we find here in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, is a tale of two Adams a tale of two federal heads who act on behalf of all of those whom they represent. Each human being on this planet has one of two federal representatives. We are all either the posterity of Adam or we are the posterity of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. We are all in the family tree of Adam or we are all in the family tree of Christ. And all of us are born into the family line of Adam, and some of us are born again into the family line of Christ. But in either case, autonomous self-independence is not possible. We don't get to repudiate our covenantal head. We don't get to emancipate ourselves from our federal representative. So this morning, we're going to let Paul tell us this tale of two Adams. He's going to describe for us what has gone wrong with the world under the headship of the first Adam, and then he's going to describe for us what has gone right in the world and what is going right in the world and will go right in the world under the headship of the second Adam. So let's begin. Look with me at verse 12 of chapter 5. Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. 
Here Paul explains how sin entered into this world and set up his dominion with his vice-regent death. Sin and death are here personified as tyrannical oppressors who are keeping the whole human race under their thumb. And this imagery is so fitting, isn't it? I mean, does this not perfectly correspond to our lived experience on this planet? How many of us are familiar with besetting sin? Doesn't it feel like some sort of oppressor has its fingers wrapped around you by the throat? How many of us have experienced the death of a loved one? Doesn't it feel like something deeply wrong has taken place? Something is not right. It's out of place. Like the whole earth is is tilted. Like birds chirping in the morning is a cruelty. That's what it feels like when we've lost someone that we love. That it's, it's deeply wrong that somehow people are just going about their business. Like everything's normal, but it's not normal because so and so is gone. That deep and abiding feeling, brothers and sisters, that we get that says something's wrong, something's out of place, that feeling that objects to the presence of death is not something that should be ignored or brushed aside or diminished. We ought never say death is a part of life. No, it's not. It's not. It's not a part of life. We should never be content with death's presence. That discontented feeling is communicating a deep truth. The truth that sin and death are illegitimate tyrants. Death is an intruder. It doesn't belong here. And Romans 5.12 tells us how it got here. When the first human being created by God, Adam, when he disobeyed God's command and he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he welcomed sin into this world and sin brought with him death and together they set up their dominion and the world has never been the same. Why? Why is it that the sin, sin came into the world through one man? Why is that? Well, the answer is difficult to stomach for a culture that prizes individuality and autonomy. The answer is that Adam acted on behalf of the entire human race. What we are talking about here is this crucial concept that we call federal headship. God created Adam as a representative of his image bearers. He was humanity's covenant representative. He was humanity's spokesman. When he acted, he acted on behalf of humanity. And so the command that God issued him to refrain from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a command that he would either obey or disobey on behalf of everyone he represented. When Adam disobeyed, his disobedience was therefore imputed, attributed to everyone under his headship, which incidentally is the entire human race. This is why the fall, all throughout Scripture, this is why the fall is laid at the feet of Adam instead of Eve. Have you ever thought about that? Even though Eve's disobedience preceded Adam's, the reason is because Eve wasn't the covenant federal head of humanity. Adam was. So when he disobeyed, he acted on behalf of the entire human race. <clears throat> In addition to the legal guilt that Adam imputed to us, he also handed down to us 
a sin nature. Paul says, death spread to all men because all sinned. And all sinned in Adam, not only legally, but also in real time. We're experiencing it right now. In other words, Adam led humanity into the enslavement of sin and death, and we are born slaves. We're born into that slavery of sin and death. That is how this world came to test, taste the sting of death. Now again, this feels unfair to a culture that obsesses over individuality and self-expression. A culture saturated with don't blame me, I voted for the other guy bumper stickers is not a culture that's friendly to this notion of federal representation. <clears throat> a culture where you're asked to, um, you're given the authority to list out your preferred personal gender pronouns on your Instagram bio is not a culture that is friendly to this idea of covenantal obligations. We're told that we have freedom to choose everything about ourselves. And here, this passage is telling us, no, you don't. You are, a, a, a you are um, part of the family line of your representative, Adam. And there's nothing you can do about it to get out of, the, out of that situation. You need help. You, brothers and sisters, are not primed by our culture to accept this notion of federal headship, but you should accept it nonetheless because it's biblical. Let's, let, let's, let's consider just a few examples, some positive and some negative. In Numbers chapter 25, the nation of Israel plummets into idolatrous Baal worship at Peor, and so God sent a plague that rapidly killed many in the nation. And so Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, executed two of the most brazen idolaters and his one zealous act of faithfulness saved the nation from further spread of the plague. He acted on behalf of the whole nation. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, we see David. This is the flip side of that coin. David sinfully and boastfully called for a census of the nation. Number them for no other reason than to boastfully gloat in his accomplishments, and as a result, God sent a pestilence and 70,000 men died. 70,000 men died because of his action. The action of the one had consequences for the many. And then all throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we see God interacting with Israel on the basis of what Moses says and does. He stands in and represents the whole nations. We could enumerate examples. All that to say, this principle of the one acting on behalf of the many is biblical. It's woven all throughout the story of Scripture. But not only is it woven into the story of Scripture, it's also basic to the world we live in, <clears throat> despite how much we might not like it. Think, for example, of the slogan, Not My President. This popular slogan, not my president. Now, in many ways, this slogan is the very definition of, indivi of the individualism that I described above. Right? It's the declaration of autonomous independence. We're saying, I don't identify myself with this presidency. But even this is a bit of an illusion, isn't it? I mean, we can say, not my president, but when whoever the president of the United States is at any given moment, when he's interacting with world leaders... Who is he interacting on, on, on who, who is he representing in his interactions? Who does he represent? He represents the whole nation, including those in the nation who are saying, not my president. 
for good or for ill, whoever is in the office represents the nation, and it works all the way down. CEOs representing their companies, managers representing their stores, team captains representing their teams, fathers representing their families. On some level, this concept of representation is irreducibly a part of our world. It's baked in. We can't get rid of it. And we trace this all the way back to our first father, Adam. And if we don't like it, we should. We should learn to like it because it is for our good, as we'll see soon enough. Let's look down at verse 13. Paul continues, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And so here Paul is helping to answer another question that we may be asking. This question of why was Adam representing humanity in that one sin and not every other sin that he committed? Why was he representing humanity strictly in that one sin? And the answer is that one sin was a breaking of the covenant that God made with him on behalf of the whole human race. This is dealing with what theologians refer to as the covenant of works. The Westminster Confession of Faith defines it this way. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. And this covenant had one prohibition. Do not eat from the tree in the midst of the garden. And so when Adam disobeyed, he broke covenant. He broke covenant on behalf of the whole human race. He broke God's law. This is what Paul is referring to in verses 13 and 14. He says, sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. Sin was in the world before the law was given. What law is he talking about here? Well, here he's talking about the Mosaic law, the Mosaic law given at Sinai. But then he says, sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Huh. So there is no such thing as sin if there is no such thing as law, since sin is a transgression of the law. And there is no death where there is no sin, since death is the penalty of the law. And yet death was on this planet before the law was given. Death was here, which means sin must have been here, right? If there's no sin to transgress, if there's no law to transgress, then there is no sin. And if there is no sin, there is no death. And yet death reigned from Adam to Moses before the Mosaic law was ever given. How is that possible? What is Paul talking about here? What does it mean? It means that there was a law that preceded the law. There was a law that preceded the Mosaic law given at Sinai. If there weren't, then the presence of death from Adam to Moses would make absolutely no sense. Here we have people dying because of transgressing of the law before the Mosaic law was ever given. So what is this law that human beings broke before Moses? It was God's moral law that he gave to all humanity beginning with Adam. That law that Adam broke on behalf of all humanity 
Paul says, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. He's saying that there's sin happening on this planet in between Adam to Moses, even for those whose sinning wasn't as a federal head representing all humanity. They were breaking the same law that Adam broke time and again. This is the law that we are all bound to by virtue of being made in God's image. It's the law that all humanity breaks, as we saw in chapter 1 when although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, but became futile in their thinking and became foolish, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of God for the glory of creatures. The law was broken by our covenant representative, Adam, the head of humanity, and it is subsequently broken by every one of us who come after him. That's the situation. But... This verse ends on a hopeful note. For Adam, Paul says, was a type of the one who was to come. You see, Adam is not the only representative of humanity. A new Adam of a new humanity came, and his name is Jesus Christ. So now let's look at verses 15 through 19 and let Paul tell us this tale of two Adams. What we see here is the difference between a photo and its photo negative. And like a photo and it's photo negative, there's a lot of similarities, a lot of things that they have in common, but the dissimilarities are the most important part. So let's look at verse 15 together. But the free gift is not like the trespass. See that contrast, free gift, not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ." Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And this is why, brothers and sisters, we should not in the least bit begrudge this principle of federal headship this principle of the one acting on behalf of the many. We may not like what Adam does on our behalf, but we should sure like what Jesus does on our behalf. And listen, this same, this same mechanism that renders Adam's actions counting for us also renders Christ's actions counting for us, this mechanism of federal headship. Without the imputation of Adam's guilt, there is no imputation of the second Adam's righteousness. There is a parallel here between the works of Adam, the federal head of a humanity being imputed to all of his posterity, and the works of Jesus, the federal head of a new humanity being imputed to all of his posterity. Adam stands in for all humanity when he transgresses God and his transgression is imputed to all of those whom he represents. And Christ 
stands in for all his new humanity when he obeys God and his obedience is imputed to all of those whom he represents. And this is very important. We should note that Christ is not merely offering a parallel alternative to Adam as another option. Rather, Christ is recapitulating humanity as it was intended. He's recapitulating humanity. Adam's failure was a failure to obey and thereby achieve the righteousness leading to eternal life. And that failure is exactly what Christ comes to achieve. He does right where Adam did wrong. Therefore, when Jesus arrives as the sinless one, he is succeeding precisely where Adam failed. Calvin sums this up nicely. He says, accordingly, our Lord came forth as true man and took the person and the name of Adam in order to take Adam's place in obeying the Father to represent our flesh as the price of satisfaction to God's righteous judgment and in the same flesh to pay the penalty that we had deserved. And all of this calls into attention another noteworthy question from our passage. What is Jesus's obedience here? What is his one act of righteousness? We know what Adam's is. Adam's transgression was taking from the prohibited fruit of the tree. But what about Christ? What is his one act of righteousness leading to justification? What is his obedience, which makes many righteous? Well, narrowly, narrowly considered, it's clear that Paul at least has in view the atoning death of Christ. After all, the, the culmination of Jesus' entire lifelong obedience hinges here in this moment at the cross. We see in the garden the final decision for obedience being made to go to the cross when his prayer concludes, not my will, but yours be done. That was when the final decision for obedience was made to go to the cross. And at the cross of Christ, all of these justifying benefits come filtered down, as it were, through one point. The center of all human history, the center of all human history is right here at the cross of Christ. This is where atonement for sin is made. This is where divine wrath is propitiated. This is where the gift of the Spirit's indwelling presence is purchased with blood. This is where righteousness meriting eternal life is made available. The cross of Christ is the one crucial point in redemptive history where Christ is lifted up and he thereafter draws all people to himself. But the fact that I just said culmination, did you hear that when I said that? That this is the culmination of Christ's lifelong obedience? The fact that I just said culmination highlights that our understanding of Christ's obedience here cannot be exhausted by his atoning work on the cross. Can you help, can you help my family real quick? <laughs> Thank you. The fact that I just said culmination highlights that our understanding of Christ's obedience here cannot be exhausted by his atoning work on the cross. It must include much more. It must include at least his work on the cross, but it must include much more. Remember, the net result of this obedience, of this obedience that is imputed to us, is not simply that we are not guilty. That's what his passive obedience achieves 
for us. It means that the guilt that we have inherited from Adam and have increased by ourselves no longer stands against us because Christ suffered the penalty of that guilt required. He suffered the consequences when, we, when he lived in this fallen and sincere world and he suffered the penalty when he drank to the dregs the cup of divine wrath on the cross. But listen, his obedience results in more than simply that we are no longer guilty. That's a glorious benefit. But the obedience here in Romans chapter five results in much more than that. His obedience means that we are righteous and that we have peace with God, as Pastor Adam talked about last week. We have peace with God leading to eternal life. Those benefits cannot be attributed entirely to the death on the cross. Those benefits are won by the life of Christ. Those benefits are won by the life of Christ. This is his active obedience, whereby he obeys the law of God perfectly for us. The law that Adam broke and that we all break. The law that rendered sinful actions sinful from Adam to Moses. The law that we were required to obey by virtue of our being made in God's image but are nevertheless unable to obey because of our sinful fallen nature. That law is the law that Christ obeys for us. And so the obedience that renders Christ's posterity righteous is a complete obedience, inextricably tied, not simply to one point in Christ's ministry here or there, but rather to his whole life. The Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Boving says it like this, his holy conception and birth and all his holy works are included in the one work of Christ. This is the whole reason why he came as a human being as a fetus and not as a grown man. He came as a fertilized egg. He came at ground zero for humanity. This is why the second person of the Trinity assumed a human nature. He was recapitulating humanity. He was starting over. He was being a whole human being on behalf of mangled and perverted human beings so that he could give his wholeness to them. To start a new humanity, to, to, to redeem a new humanity from the ashes of the burnt down old one. That's what he was doing. He was doing the human life right for the first time. He was doing humanity right for the first time. And he now represents a new humanity with a perfect track record. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, all throughout this letter of Romans, whenever Paul zooms out and he spends time discussing Christ in relation to all humanity in general, one question always pulls him back down to the particular, and it is the question, what about Israel? He's talking about all humanity in general, and then there's always this question that pulls him down to the particular of Christ in relation to ethnic Israel. And it's always this question, what about Israel? And this is what's happening in verse 20. Paul's picking up on the thought that he left off in verse 14, when he said, death reigned from Adam to Moses. 
And so he's been talking about life in Adam versus life in the new Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And so now the question is, yes, that's, that's all well and good for comparing and contrasting Adam and Christ, but what about when Moses did come? What about when the law did arrive? Did the law change things for life in Adam? Did the law come to reverse the state of affairs for humanity in Adam? And Paul's answer is no, quite the opposite, in fact. The problem of life under the headship of Adam isn't resolved by the advent of the Mosaic law. It's highlighted by the advent of the Mosaic law. (laughs) And God does this so that he can more clearly dazzle our vision with the brilliance of his grace. Israel, in other words, doesn't showcase God's glory by crushing it, by doing great. That's not how Israel showcases God's glory. She showcases God's glory by proving that nothing can fix what has been broken apart from the intervention of God himself. She she proves that nothing, not even a holy, perfect, clear, understandable, accessible law given by God himself can reverse the curse. Israel, you see, is no better or worse than any other descendant of Adam. But the clarity of God's law given at Sinai brings the brokenness of Adam's posterity, which is seen in general for all humanity, into clear focus for Israel. It highlights the the nature of the problem by putting a finger on it, saying, here's where the disobedience is. And so it proves that Israel too needs a new Adam and the law thereby sets God up for a breathtaking display of sheer unmerited grace. Again, we should not begrudge this. God's glory showcasing unmerited grace in contrast to the hopeless state of despair in Adam is our gain. When God showcases his glory by displaying his grace in contrast to the hopeless despair that is in Adam, we are benefited from that. So we should not begrudge this principle. And so now in light of all of this, I don't have much to to tell you to do. What I charge you to do is simply to marvel with gratitude at what God has done for us in Christ. To marvel with gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. Think back on the shower of comforting words that we just read in in this section of Romans chapter five, the way that, that Paul describes what's happening, the free gift of grace by Jesus, abounding for many, verse 15. The gift that brought justification, verse 16. We receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. And that grace and righteousness reigns, has authority, reigns for those who have been united to Christ, verse 17. By his act of righteousness, we have justification and life, verse 18. And by his obedience, we have been made righteous, verse 19. There's nothing to do with any of this. In verses 12 through 21, Paul doesn't tell us to do anything. He's gonna get to that in chapter six. But here there are no imperatives. You know the difference between the imperative mood and the indicative mood? 
The indicative mood is, is the mood of is. What is the case? The Bible is on the podium. The imperative mood is the do. Put the, podium on, put the Bible on the podium, right? Paul doesn't tell us to do anything in this section of Scripture. He's just telling us what is the case. The pastor and theologian John Piper has become familiar to many of us for his language of seeing and savoring Christ. And this language is so appropriate. Seeing and savoring Christ with the eyes of, of faith, the seeing is the savoring. So God forbid we ever hear these words and let them go in one ear and out the other with little notice. You have been made righteous, brothers and sisters. You have been made righteous in him. He suffered the punishment that your sin earned. And you receive and enjoy the benefits of everlasting life that his obedience earned. What kind of Adam does this? What kind of covenant representative, what kind of federal head does this for all of his followers? The kind that deserves all praise and adoration and gratitude. That's who. So see him and savor him. An unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever and you've, you've joined us here this morning, I'm glad that you're here. And my invitation to you this morning is nothing short of the invitation to become a part of a new humanity. Become a part of a new humanity. You cannot emancipate yourself from your covenant head, Adam. Your guilt in him is not something that you can get rid of simply by eschewing him. You don't get the option, in other words, to declare, not my Adam. You don't get to be your own Adam. Your only option is to come under the federal headship of a different Adam. And there's only one other, and his name is Jesus Christ. And whereas Adam's record is nothing but failure, and being in him means that you too are a failure, Christ's record is nothing but impeccable. It's perfect. And this is the choice that you have set before you this morning. Death in Adam or life in Christ. That's it. That's your option. It is that simple and that stark. Death in Adam, life in Christ. And if you feel like you've been pushed into a corner and that the choice has been somehow rigged so that choosing to reject Christ is simply foolish, it's not because I am some master manipulator who has tricked you into a false choice. It's because rejecting Jesus really is foolish. The choice really is that stark and that simple. So what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What better option could possibly come around the corner? Death in Adam or life in Christ. Christ is offered to you now. So take him by faith. Tell him that you want him as your federal representative. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what could we say? We are speechless when we consider who you are for us. Thank you for the truth of what this word communicates. Use it now as you see fit to build your church. Lord, convict the wayward. Encourage the downcast. Enliven the exhausted. Redeem the lost. And now continue to feed our souls as we feed on this holy meal of communion. 
receive our enjoyment of this meal now as an act of worship to the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I hope you all look forward to communion every week as much as I do. <clears throat> what, we, what we do here every week in communing with Christ and with one another at this table is essential Christian living. And it's therefore recentering. It's a reorienting reality that we practice every week. We are reminding ourselves of what is real. We're reminding ourselves of which Adam we belong to. And so, if you're a believer, we invite you to come and take this meal with us, and we invite you to do so with gratitude and self-awareness. And if you're not a believer in Christ Jesus this morning, again, I'm glad that you're here, and I would ask that you please don't get up and take this meal with us. It is for those who are a part of the second Adam's posterity, and if you have not trusted in Christ by faith alone, you are still estranged from the second Adam and are a part of the first Adam. And therefore, this meal would mean less than nothing to you. Not only would it not constitute the fellowship of spiritual communion, that it is for those of us who are taking it, it would also be a lie. So don't, don't, don't take it. You're not doing yourself any favor or us any favor. We would actually appreciate the self-awareness and the honesty of, of you remaining in your seat and wrestling with these things as we enjoy this meal as an invitation to you to come and become a part of Jesus Christ. The invitation to you this morning is to come under the loving headship of Christ and not pretend like you already are. Believers, in just a moment, I'm going to ask that you come down. You'll come down on my left and um, come down this aisle. I think we have, we will have sanitizer, right? Okay, um, this, uh, you'll receive your... your um, hand sanitizer, and then you'll come over and receive the elements over here, um, and then you'll return back to your seats along this aisle on my right. Emmaus, I love you guys. Please come in and take. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com. Mm-hmm.